Well, hello everyone. Hello. Welcome hello. to the compost bin of history, where we stick our pitchforks into old ideas and mix them around with the new ones. I'm your host, James, and I'm joined by my very handsome and comely co-host. Comely. I I like your uh mastery of the English language. It really turns me on. You should turn your mic up or bring it a little closer to you, Jared. Oh. Like this? That's a little better, yeah. I, de- I get a little bit more. Okay. Tell me. As long as there isn't too much feedback, you know. Well. I'm not hearing any. I don't got any. All right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. I am waiting for some more feedback from you, though. What's, uh, oh. <laughs> how's it going? Jared, I just want you to know I like your beard because it tickles my face when you give me hugs. Oh. Well. I like how you shiver ever so gently while my beard is tickling your face. <laughs> um, I like how your hands are big and meaty for uh, giving back rubs. Yes, that is all they are good at. Um, I really, really enjoy your mastery of a flannel shirt, <laughs> especially while you're out for a afternoon jaunt. No, thank you. Yeah, it's it's actually Spirit Week at the middle school today, so it was flannel day. So ah, that's why okay. I'm flannel. Yeah, sure it is. <laughs> and because I knew I was seeing you later. Oh, wow! You've always known how to really get my motor running. I also like how you wear glasses because it makes me feel more okay with also wearing glasses. Ah, okay. Wow. I also appreciate your receding hairline because it makes me feel better about my own. Well, I, I'm glad it's good for something. <laughs> Aside from indicating my high levels of testosterone and extreme manliness. Oh, of course, of course. Yep, we're your hosts, James and Jared, two manly men. Manly men who talk about other manly men. Yeah, because we're going to talk about manly men from history today. Fucking fucking Davy Crockett, who's been murdering bears since he was an infant, apparently. I'm pretty sure that's him. I don't know. I do well, know I didn't read that in the book. <laughs> He's the king of the wild frontier. <laughs> I'm going to put that song in now. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I haven't heard that since I was like, seven years old <laughs> yeah well you know with people like davy crockett and jim Bowie, and also this guy who we're basically not going to talk about at all except as how he relates to these other people william barrett travis these are the kind of people who have a lot of history written about them through the ages right there's they're always looking back at davy crockett and jim Bowie and you know, superimposing every new generation's values and mores back onto these these figures. Yeah, don't we do that with the Vikings too? Oh, definitely. But in that 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 process, though, the acknowledgement that you know everyone looks at history a little bit differently, especially as time advances, that's what we might call historiography. Um, historiography 
is basically the study of the study of history. So, you know, you're singing Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier, right? Like, there was kind of a wild frontier. You know, how wild was it? How much of a frontier was it? Is that erasing some other narratives about people who might have been living along that frontier, maybe on the other side of it, you know? And was Davy Crockett even that kingly? Was he even someone to, like, be revered or idolized? Uh, are we supposed to like kings as Americans? I mean, yeah, all that, <laughs> Cause we all sh- that interpretation. We should talk a lot about kings. We, re- we revere kings, you know. Yeah. Elvis, LeBron James. We love an authoritarian, you know, like, uh, especially, yeah, like LeBron James, someone who's just like a, a solo operator, right? And like Elvis, better if it's a white guy who's stolen a bunch of shit from black people. He's the king. Totally. At least Elvis is good, though. He's not Pat Boone. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that that myth making right that's historiography it's kind of like picking out what we emphasize and how we interpret it in our current state one thing when we did our episode on economics which by the way i want to say holds up really well i haven't felt the need to talk about any of this gamestop bullshit any of this non-fungible token bullshit because all we need to do is just look back at our economics episode (laughs) Where we said, hey, it's all just bullshit, guys. You don't need to understand it because it's just fake. It's just people gambling. Yeah. But like you said on that episode, you said economics is not the study of capitalism. It's the cheerleading of capitalism. 100%. That's what historiography is. The cheerleading of the people that we like in history. Exactly. Exactly. It's It's providing a narrative to this thing that is supposedly, you know, like fact- Yeah. And so before we get into our series on Jim Bowie, which I know I've teased a lot, I thought it'd be good to start out by talking a little bit about historiography and probably the most famous person at the Alamo, Davy Crockett or David Crockett, who, yeah, has songs written about him. The uh, archery like game trophy system is the Boone and Crockett system. Like, he has a legacy. And he actually was a guy who, like, cultivated his celebrity. Like, he knew he was famous, and he kind of, like, did a lot to, you know, ensure that. Other people knew he was famous. Of course he did, man. He was one of the early Americans. I mean, he's like a Donald Trump in some that ways. Was like, that, was, <laughs> that was the name of the game back then, man. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it was, uh, you know, frontier fame, right? Yeah. What were the newspapers back east going to write? Exactly. It was just, uh, you know, Instagram thoughts, but for like 1820. Right. I don't know. Is is thoughts an appropriate word to say? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, a yeah, he's he's a poster for sure. Yeah, instead of being you know? a sexy lady on Instagram, he was like a industrious and full of guile American back in the frontier days. Exactly. And, and that's why... You know, it merits an examination of historiography whenever we talk about these figures. And so, uh, you know, one of the famous historiographers 
and historians of America is this guy de Tocqueville, who many of you might have heard of. Um, Tocqueville was French. Despite his last name, probably not as big of a hippie as it sounds like. <laughs> I know, right? I, whenever I read this, I want to call him Tocqueville. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, so he was a French guy. He was born kind of like in the Napoleonic era. And then he came of age in like the 1820s and 30s. And then he traveled extensively in America. And so, you know, he wrote a lot. He wrote a, a book called Democracy in America about this time period. And it's important to understand that, you know, he was coming from a France where there had been a revolution and it had descended into an empire and that had descended into a series of coalition wars and, you know, the invasion of Russia and it all ended badly, right? So for de Tocqueville coming to America, he kind of looked at this burgeoning republic expanding across the frontier as, you know, the system working, whereas it had failed in his own country. Not that he would even say it failed, but he would say, you know, that it didn't work out for different reasons. So he was, uh, he grew up under a monarchy, but he was a liberal. Right. Yeah. He was definitely a liberal. Yes. And he was fascinated, like a lot of Europeans are, he was kind of fascinated by America and the frontier mythos, even when the frontier was in Tennessee and Kentucky and, you know, Mississippi. I mean, it was a fascinating time and place. Yeah, and so that's what we're going to look at today, and we're going to you know quote de Tocqueville a little bit, but we're going to be kind of quoting him secondhand via the author of this book, and this is the book I'm going to use for the majority of our next several episodes. Obviously, I don't know how long this series gonna, is going to be. <laughs> I swear this is not a say. podcast about only the Alamo. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're definitely a grower, not a shower on podcast length, because every time you talk about it, it gets bigger. And bigger. <laughs> but yeah, so this guy, I'm going to use this book for the next several episodes, but we need to understand a few things about him. Okay. This is a good resource and I'll explain why it's a good resource, but we're also going to problematize it a little bit. This is three roads to the Alamo, the lives and fortunes of David Crockett. James Bowie and William Barrett Travis by historian William C. Davis. And I'll just put put the cards on the table right now. William C. Davis is a Confederate simp. In fact, he's kind of one of the people who kind of like revitalized the lost cause narrative. Are you familiar with the lost cause narrative, Jared? Uh, no, I've never heard of it. Uh, does it have anything to do with uh, undeserving people sabotaging the deserving people? Or? <laughs> well, it kind of comes up a lot. Like it came up um, with like World War One. You know, like who are those people who are all about like saying like World War One? Like, oh, the Germans they could have had it if they hadn't been betrayed by the people at the top. You know, what were those guys called again? Um. um uh, just uh, objective viewers of reality. Right, right. Um, they were like socialists, but they're also nationalists because those terms yeah. aren't contradictory. Um, Something like that. Right. I don't know. They were all about efficiency. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, obviously, you know, lost cause is something that popped up around World War One. The Nazis were big, you know, proponents of the lost cause narrative. There. We also have our own lost cause narrative here in America regarding the Civil War. 
that the Confederate cause was more about defending the homeland, right? Regardless of what the aristocracy said about their economic modes of production, who does anything based on economic incentives? Obviously, this is because of union aggression. You know, they invaded us and we fought back. You know, it's that kind of bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, so specifically with William C. Davis, he's written most of his stuff is about you know, the Confederacy. And then he also kind of dabbles into Texas history because of course, should I, should I spoil it? Texas is part of the Confederacy. (laughs) (laughs) They have slaves there. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) So that's kind of why he's also interested. Now, interestingly, Davis himself is not from the South. He's one of these neocon types. Who's like from California but he's like the product of that bounteous frontier. Like his family made generational wealth and passed it on to him. And he's kind of like regurgitated up these, you know, arch conservative viewpoints and, you know, become fascinated with the symbols of this type of conservatism, even though he has no like heritage in it. Does that make sense? Well, I mean, he kind of has heritage in it. He does have generational wealth and all of that. Um, Right. You know, <clears throat> yeah, he's not a direct beneficiary of, you know, well, in some ways he is a direct beneficiary of that I mean, exploitation. It's not like the products of the South were staying in the South. Right. That's true. That's true. But, you know, he's a little bit of an outsider. So he's got to he's got to work a little harder to prove his credentials. Right. You know, he doesn't get to just sit on his grandpa's porch and sit moonshine and chew tobacco he's got to get out there he's got to do his research yeah he's got to get a phd and write some books and again and that's why i think this is a good resource and i would recommend it to people who want to learn more detail about you know this this event i would say don't buy it new don't give him the money and we'll explain why that is next if you want to pick up a copy of this book get it from thrift books go to your local library or um, use some other uh, retailer that does not feed directly back to his pocket because he's not a good person, but he is a good researcher. You could say he's a good American. <laughs> you you could say that. <laughs> so yeah, specifically with Davis, the way he kind of kind of uh, what were you saying? He he's got some ground to make up, right? Because he's a bit of an outsider. Well, yeah, you know, he's didn't start out in the clan or the club, right. but uh, he's got to just make sure everybody knows he's cool. Yeah. So with regards to like the Civil War, the way you do that is by being obsessed with the common people's experience, the experience of the soldiers, right? The sons of planters who didn't own slaves, but got drafted into this into this cause. And basically, yeah, he says that they were defending their homes in the Civil War, that there was honor in what they were fighting for, for that reason. And I don't really think that's an excuse because it basically ignores the complex interplay of top-down and bottom-up economic dynamics that went into, that always go into events like this, any kind of Civil War in particular. Yeah, and I mean, fast fast forward or rewind 100 years in that same area. And how is that same person going to feel about the people defending their homes? Exactly. Exactly. Right. And that's what we're going to see with what he writes about in this. And I'd like to compare it to like saying that, you know, 
those those last Nazis who were dying in like Berlin and you know at the Battle of the Bulge, they were really just defending their homes from you know Allied bombing raids and the horrible abuses of the Red Army, right? Like they were on German soil and these people had to take up defense, you know, and it was it was valorous and noble in spite of the fact that they were fighting for fascists. Yeah, you know, your abusive boyfriend is really sorry that you made him hit you. Exactly. It's it's that type of mentality that fosters this and it's bullshit. Okay. And really it hurts him more than you anyway. Right. So in that sense, we can actually have a lot of fun with William C. Davis in this book on the Alamo because he gives us his historiography and we get to put our historiography on top of it, right? It's so it's just so hard to be the aggressor, you know? <laughs> yeah, so um so th- this will be fun because we can put our own spin on things. Oh, and Let's hear from the man himself. I'm just going to play a really cringy clip from uh, William C. Davis. Now, Jared, you're going to you're going to love this. Okay, I'll tell you what the interview is titled. This is from a series called "Lately at the Library" from Mississippi State University Libraries. All right, just wholesome educational university content. Nothing untoward has ever happened in a library. <laughs> Especially in the floors in the college library that are just never used. All right, so here... No one goes to. Nothing's nothing's going on there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to play this for you. <laughs> All right, you got it? Oh, my. This is William C. Davis over here, by the way. Oh, my God. Right? These are the two oldest white just... <laughs> All right, you guys should look this up. <laughs> These guys look like they fought in the Confederacy. All right, so I'm playing this. This clip is from 28 minutes 22 in the video. I'll post the link to the video. Interesting point. Very interesting. As a last look at that uh, hair, area dude. of discussion, that's more au courant and contemporary to us is the... It's an amazing issue here. now <clears throat> surrounding Confederate statuary and memorials. And it's not just Confederate yeah. leaders that we're talking about. Christopher Columbus in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. In my state is uh, the, the statue in memory of him has suffered Good old Christopher Columbus was vandalized. Efforts to relocate yeah. it. He didn't do and anything you bad. did a piece that was really very early on in the Lost Cause. He never set foot uh, dilemma, on the fossil United States. You know, <laughs> uh, that uh, had a way out, an exit strategy. And why don't you tell By the way, he said viewers, uh, last cause take on this and, lost cause and how you feel about it. Sure. I think that was in the Wall Street Journal four or five years ago. Uh, I mean, to start, it's understandable where the outcry is coming from and why it's coming. Whether you agree with it or not, I think you can at least <laughs> see that there is a point there. Uh, but whether that point should be okay. driven to the extreme that it has been is entirely a different matter. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're bodlerizing or uh, trying to sanitize our own past in a way. Which Don't I think sanitize our past. When there's so much that instead can be learned from these people, these Confederate leaders... Um, so much and Columbus and others, leaders. by the way, um, uh, without necessarily having to try to expunge them somehow. 
uh, I'm much more in favor of, of interpretive signage, that sort of thing, to explain <laughs> why was this statue put here uh, in 1895 okay. rather than in 1865. Uh, what did oh, he? Yeah, she why was it? What did they mean to, in their time and place and to the people who were, were listening to them? And how does that fit into the overall continuum of American history as we constantly march more toward more small l, liberal, small p, progressive views on men, <laughs> women, and their places in society? Learn from them men, rather than trying women, to, places in society. to put them out of our way. I visited Budapest. Uh, seven or eight years ago, a beautiful city I just loved. When the Soviets pulled out, Budapest, like all of the cities in the old Eastern Bloc countries, was full of this hideous old uh, Soviet statuary uh, of Lenin, well, Lenin and Stalin for a while, and military leaders and all that. Okay. And some cities just destroyed all of that. The mayor of Budapest said, Obviously. We can't do that. We can't afford to forget. So what they did do is they picked them all up and they moved them across the Danube and created what they call Memory Park. And you can go there today. It's, it's really interesting. It's kind of creepy, actually. But you can see all these monoliths commemorating this repressive regime. And I think it's a very eloquent reminder of, of the price you can pay if you don't watch for your freedoms. Yes. And I... I Yes. That dude just fucking came, dude. That's really kind of up yes. <laughs> that is exactly face. what he Why dude, Look at his face. Have to worship. That is exactly what he wanted to hear. Ago. I'd rather see today's people create, put up new monuments or new street names in honor of today's heroes. Uh, in Richmond, Arthur Ashe is on Monument <laughs> Avenue. That's not the way history works, William C. Davis. There are plenty of people that could be. Who can be yeah, William, why were they putting those up 20 years afterwards? Without necessarily <laughs> having to bodlerize or erase I want to know why he before. thinks that happened. I wouldn't be surprised but what we may wind up eventually with something like that. I think the furor, I don't this think is an old something like that. story, by the way. It didn't just come about in the last few years. Back in the 1960s, there were movements in uh, Nashville to get rid of a bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest that was on the Capitol steps. Founder of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, a statue of Jeff Davis is in the park in Memphis. President of the Confederacy. Overlooking the Mississippi. Who, by the way, he's not Jefferson Davis, to, Jeff uh, Davis, to, to William C. Uh, Davis. I think if people oh, wait. clear heads <laughs> Do you think he's a, a little patience, He's like, a, maybe you're right. He maybe is generationally be, connected to the Confederacy. We're no longer he's, necessarily could be. He's Jefferson Davis's like, great-grandson. Or a cause that was he probably formulated is. around and principally in existence because of slavery because we have a statue of Robert E. Lee or Jefferson Davis. Uh, I read an interesting is, book. Though. I don't I'll think he's right. This. Not long ago, about the Zulu War of 1879 in South Africa by a modern military historian. And they have some of these same issues there as well because there are some statues of some British uh, soldiers. I wonder why. Controversial mm. in, in, in uh, Natal in South Africa. And uh, the author closed with a plea, saying, why can't we honor bravery and sacrifice without feeling that in doing so, we honor the cause in which they were demonstrated? And I think that's not a bad approach to take. I agree. Mm. And uh, 
I think it points out uh, the, the fact I'm gonna that, say I disagree. that we as a country or as in citizens in our great country are not necessarily patient. I mean, I get it. This guy thinks that fucking able to fighting, no matter what, apparently is somehow courageous. conceived yeah. as it may have been uh, in, in their being But I think it's our place in, to mock and belittle uh, a memorial them. fashion, Not so to honor speak. and, you know... Yeah. Uh, memorialize. We risk cannibalizing. Yeah, well, I wonder what this dude deal thinks culture. about the Zulus uh, that fought against those British. The, the reparations right. movement. He's not talking about fucking Zulu of, monuments or anything. Coadjunct of this as well. And where do, once you start, where do you stop? Uh, I would listen the to this. The descendants of ancient Britons ought to go after Rome for reparations for the conquest in 45 BC. Right. <laughs> oh my I mean, God. Once you right. start it, where, how far do you go? So this is a bit somber. Really? Fucking slippery slope, lost cause. This dude is the most boring person ever. Fucking. This is like <laughs> This is like the arguments of any fucking just shithead in like a Western Civ class. Yeah. <laughs> the one guy that's making all the girls upset in Western Civ class. Right. So yeah, I mean, where do you stop? That's some bullshit, man. I mean, you know, just for me personally, um, where do you stop? I don't know. Maybe quit putting up these dumb fucking monuments. Yeah, that would be a start. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just to lay my cards on the table, you know, I don't know how often we talk about it. Part of my, like, economic worldview involves the idea that to, like, right the wrongs of history, recent history, not even 45 BC history, but just recent history, there needs to be some sort of, like, global reparation system that starts pumping money back into south america and africa and southeast asia that like you know pays these countries back for all the wealth that's been extracted over the last several decades and that's even a bigger idea than just saying that you know the black people who are the descendants of slaves in america deserve some reparations for all the unpaid labor that their family well, members I mean, did prior to the civil war what's, what's the money even going to do if like the entire system doesn't change, I mean, well, you can't do it unless the whole system changes in the first exactly. place. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, but that's so why I'm a like Marxist. Paying, just like paying people, that's not going to really do anything. But yeah, I'm I'm saying not just paying, but like literal wealth. I mean, like you know, capital, capital C capital, right? I, you know, that's a, I, I'm just putting my own cards out here, Jared. Okay, I'm saying yeah. that you know. If we actually do want to have a better society than the one we have right now, that's something that I think we need to do. Probably be a start. Yeah. I mean, you're right. It's completely interlocked with a hundred other issues that are equally vaccine and, you know, also get to the heart of the exploitative nature of our modern economy. We can start to cut through that Gordian knot by looking at stuff like this. Yeah, we could. I mean, shit. As somebody who, I mean, kind of agrees with a lot of the stuff Lenin says, you know, whatever, fucking tear the statues in yeah. Budapest down. Who gives a shit? I, I would, honestly, <laughs> if they want to sell one to me, I will put it in my living room. I'd love to have a just, nice bust of Lenin. Just buy one? Yeah. <laughs> Take that, communists. I bought a bust of Lenin. <laughs> Doesn't that disprove your whole theory of everything? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, know, man. 
I think I think Davis knows what he's doing though here. And so a lot of what I'm going to be doing is just, you know, kind of reading from quotes from him and him quoting other people, right? So let's hear let's I don't know see if what... he knows what he's doing, but he's definitely absorbed all of the talking points. Well, he kind of starts out this book by relaying something which I think is in the movie The Alamo that had um who's the guy who drinks blood? Uh he drank, he drank Angelina Jolie's blood. Uh, Billy Bob? Billy Bob Thornton. He was in it. And also Dennis Quaid, I want to say. Oh, shit. Okay. I'm not, I haven't watched it. I'm not going to watch it. Okay. But William C. Davis kind of starts by talking about a scene from that movie where all three of these guys, Travis, uh, Bowie, Wait. Crockett. God damn it. What? Are you kidding me? He starts his fucking history book by talking about a movie? Well, he, he starts it by talking about the scene, this alleged meeting. This is from myth, right? He doesn't actually mention this is in the movie. I just happen to know. Oh, this is in the movie. okay, okay. But, you know, yeah, this is from the myth about these three guys who met together several years at this dinner for commemorating Andrew Jackson. Gotcha. And so, this is Romulus and Remus being birthed of a right. wolf mother. It's the whatever. origin story. Um. And, but here Davis says to his credit, and yet it is all illusion. On the one hand, fiction became fact, and on the other, misconception turned into history. Not one of them, not Crockett or Bowie or Travis, or Austin for that matter, attended the Jackson dinner. There were no speeches of Texas and dying for liberty. The whole story is an invention. As for their burial together nine years later, it is quite possible, even probable, that not one atom of the one-time bodies of any of the three found its way into the coffin that bore their names. So he's at least willing to entertain the idea that there is a big gap between reality and history, right? But does he also say that it doesn't matter? (laughs) I mean, that's kind of what he's saying here, is that you have to embrace the mystery, right? (laughs) sure and here he here you know and this is part of the problem is he says like ignorance has been the curse of their posterity and it still flourishes and i would say ignorance is only part of the problem because emphasis i think is equally important in how we you know assemble a posterity right what we emphasize and why and how we emphasize it certainly He actually does kind of do a bit of a self-own here, too, which I think is kind of fun. Like Americans in general, perhaps they were too enamored of the myth to want to supplant it with a reality that might be prosaic rather than lurid or heroic. Fair point. And then here's his self-own. We all part reluctantly with our myths, and the more so when, by removing the fable, we leave a hole in the story that we cannot fill with fact. For in proving that something did not happen, we do not automatically establish what did. And to me, that's a cell phone. I feel like he's basically saying, like, I don't fucking know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he's also saying, like, well, come on, guys. Everybody does it. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. I mean, to be fair, we're doing the same thing. Yeah. But from a a different, you know, uh, background. We're We're also not selling you a book or a narrative. I mean, okay, we're selling you a narrative, but... But not a book. I mean, this yeah. is a free podcast. You know, you don't have to uh, do a whole lot to get it. All right. So, yeah, continuing from Davis. 
But for their dramatic ends on March 6th, 1836 at the Alamo, perhaps only Crockett of the three would have attracted enough attention either for the creation or the dispelling of myth since he was already a celebrity. And that's that's kind of what we're going to talk what what we've already talked about as you said, Jared, you know. He's the king of the frontier. Their involvement in Texas settlement and revolution and their apotheosis at the Alamo only magnified them as exaggerated portraits of hundreds of thousands of others. They were all products of the Scots-Irish migration. They were all the kind of men that French observer Alexis de Tocqueville had in mind when he wrote in the 1830s of the American penchant for improvisations of fortune. Uh, So, correction, Crockett was not Scotch-Irish. His family immigrated from Ireland, but they were French Huguenots. Crockett is actually like a, it should have like a Q and two T's and an E in it, you know? Like they changed it when they came over. You remember in one of our early episodes, we were like... doesn't matter, though. They came from Ireland. They're Scots-Irish. <laughs> That's the myth overtaking the legend, and he just did yeah. it right there, right? Yeah. Or the myth overtaking the, the truth. Um, but, you know, earlier on when we said... Uh, one of our early episodes on this, like in in Spain, how they were like hung those Frenchmen. the Or in Florida, they were like, we hung these, oh, yeah. these men as Lutherans, not as Frenchmen, right? Those were Huguenots. They were like French Lutherans, and those were also Crockett's ancestors. You know, one of the other things we often misunderstand about history is like people just come to America and then settle on the farm, and then that's the family farm for generations. Not the way it works. Like people, just like with migrations today, there's like lots of intermediary stops. You know, this family basically left France, was essentially at a refugee camp in Ireland, in Northern Ireland with other Protestant outcast for a while couldn't get it going there and hopped across the atlantic to america yeah well you don't talk about the times when it didn't work (laughs) right scots irish sorry sorry (laughs) you talk about the good old days not the true old days right and this and so i i hate davy crockett and this is why crockett stood for the thousands who were always on the edge of the wilderness Fucking go in the wilderness, Davy Crockett. Get lost. Why are you just hanging out on the edge? What a bitch. Well, He's a bitch, dude. I mean, I feel like there's a like an unspoken thing there. All these people on the edge of the wilderness were standing in their way in the wilderness. It's almost like on the other side of that edge, there was just like a whole other civilization or something. <laughs> yeah. All right. Bowie epitomized those who invariably followed the Crockett's, the entrepreneurs and the exploiters, the second wave, right? The men who came and profited often outside the law and moved on to the next potential bonanza, their addresses almost as temporary as Crockett's. And so with Bowie, I feel like there's at least honesty there. I'll finish my my idea here. And then arrived Travis, the man of community and society, the lawgiver, the town builder, even founder of a state or nation, one of the millions who came and stayed to create. And I'm like, fucking boring. Who wants to hear about that <laughs> dumb bullshit? Like, he just... Well, I mean, there you go, though. We've got colonizer, financier, and then... Yeah. 
you know, bureaucrat. Yeah. So yeah, fucking William Travis, boring piece of shit. I'm not going to talk about him at all. Davy Crockett. We're going to go over a brief history of him today. And then, like I said, we're going to have Boku Bowie content. It's going to be Bowie, 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 Bowie <laughs> on compostment of history after this week. Okay. We're buying in hard on. Oh my Bowie. god! You know what, dude? I like him. I'm just going to put put it out there as I've as I'm kind of really digging in. I got to say, I think Bowie would be someone. It's like you could either be friends with Bowie or you can be enemies with Bowie. There's no in between. And you don't want to be his enemy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're getting some Putin vibes here. Well, I mean, yeah, maybe a little bit, but well, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. But yeah, Crockett though, just, just a cuck bitch, man. I mean, like a celebrity, a fucking psychopath. Yeah. Let's quote some more from uh historiographer, excuse me, historian, William C. Davis, because I think this sums it up pretty well. And again, he's quoting Alexis de Tocqueville. They were, in their way, the new Elizabethans, appeal to British imperialism. They were, in their way, the new Elizabethans, and Tocqueville did not fail to observe that, quote, the present-day American republics are like companies of merchants formed to exploit the empty lands, wink, of the new world and prosperous commerce is their occupation end quote now here that's not good enough for william c davis he has to continue <laughs> confronted with a seemingly limitless new frontier of inexhaustible resources they saw in the remaking of themselves as each left the life in which he had failed east of the mississippi and the sabine just as those earlier adventurers crossed the Atlantic to rebuild their fortunes. They came as rapacious consumers of land and wildlife, and with limited regard for those who already inhabited the new world they coveted. Yet they made something of what they took. Yeah, the ends justify the means, baby. Despite the mess their generation usually left behind, they were builders as well as destroyers. So what, yeah. yeah, what Davis is saying is that all of that's okay because America is good and because Texas is really good. Well, hey, did the natives ever have shipping depots? <laughs> I mean, yes, they had like, they had trade networks, so therefore they did have shipping depots. Yeah, but did they ever have anybody writing about it? <laughs> I mean, to be, they probably did, but not in, <laughs> not in ways that are passed down to us right like (laughs) (laughs) i'm just like fuck this guy dude this is hilarious right like rapacious consumers of land and wildlife i don't know this sounds like serious scholarship to me but yeah you but you hit the nail on the head you know the ends justify the means and that's what davis is saying here right and honestly if you know to go back to the nazi metaphor this is the kind of shit they'd be writing about the nazis 200 years after world war ii They'd be like, yes, they were rapacious. This is the kind of shit that people today still write about yeah. the Nazis. Yeah, yes, they were rapacious consumers of, you know, the, the blood I mean, you of said Eastern it. Europe. Hey, man, but the trains ran on time. You yeah. fucking said it. <laughs> yeah, I said it. Yeah, You know? <laughs> I mean, I don't even know if that's true. I don't even know if the trains did run on time. Doesn't matter. 
It's been said so many times, we believe it. <laughs> That's historiography. That yeah. in, end of the historiography lesson. <laughs> I'm saying this in the opposite of the fascist way, but like also recognizing that, hey man, the truth doesn't fucking matter. Yeah. 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 And and that's what Davis is saying, right? It should, but it doesn't. Right. Davis Davis is right there with us and we're right there with him on that. But we're gonna give you, you know, the the um the underground cut, right? Yeah. Yeah. Man, those uh what were they called? The coffee house socialists or whatever? Yeah, they the were coffee right, house dude. anarchists. Yeah. Uh, dude. When they outlawed they outlawed uh the history <laughs> program. No, no, no. You just no, they didn't even outlaw it. You just had to pay if you wanted to go to the history oh, right. thing because yeah. because it was like against society yeah, or something it was like that. Hostile to civilization. <laughs> yeah. I think they were onto something there. Yeah, they totally were, man. They totally were. <laughs> All right, so yeah, let's 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 dig in on uh, on Davy Crockett after we've left the men and legends behind. My thesis here is that only Bowie is actually worthy of extensive analysis, and we're going to have a lot of fun with him. Crockett is rather interesting. William Travis, fucking fucking. I mean, I don't even know. I just think of like a gray like slate in my head when I hear that name. Just like boring. Don't care. I still have zero idea who that even is. Don't let. Yeah. I'll, <laughs> He basically only is relevant as, like, um, the guy who stands in front of Jim Bowie and says, hmm, I don't know if that's a good idea. You know, that kind of All thing. Right. <clears throat> and, of course, Bowie doesn't listen to him. And neither will we. All right. So, as we've established, the Crockett family or Croquet family is kind of of French Huguenot ancestry, despite what uh, William Davis would have us believe. And... Yeah, you know, I think it's worth talking a little bit about, like, not necessarily for Crockett himself, but that a lot of this wave of migration coming from Europe at this time was not only due to religious conflict, which was definitely why a lot of Huguenots left France, but also because of, like, the effects of capitalism in Europe, the closures of public lands, areas that families had used as common farmland for generations, local aristocrats were kind of, like, seizing this up and walling it off. And that was driving people out of Ireland and England and Scotland at this time, right? So in in his own way, all of these, in their own way, all these guys, their families are products of this development of capitalism, just like, you know, our families are, right? You don't just get up and leave because you think a change of scenery would be nice. Yeah, I mean, you know, usually you don't radically change your life if things are going well. Exactly, exactly. This is when Jared says, but they had capitalism there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So a few things to note about, uh, yeah, the, the Crockett family, once they came to America, we have to talk a little bit about land speculation. Are you familiar with, uh, the process of speculating on land, Jared? Uh, no, not at all. I'm certainly not doing that right now. <laughs> yeah, this would be like if you went out to compost acres and you just set up a really nice like office in one one corner of it. And you said, we've got the, the hottest three acres in Sioux City. This is going to be, in, in two years, this is going to be Brooklyn. And you guys could get in right now. We've got Luss. We've got 
more or less. We've got smooth brome. <laughs> <laughs> and boy, let me tell you what, it's hot. It's going to be really, really hot next year. You guys can get in right now. I'll sell you a you know, half-acre lot for $250,000 a pop. Sounds like a deal, right? Sounds like a great deal, right? You get to live in beautiful Sioux City. You get to be friends with Jared, perhaps. And that's that's the gist of land speculation. It's kind of overblowing this potentially valuable resource that you have in abundant supply. And then, you know, selling it like it is a rare, hot thing, regardless yeah. of the consequences. But... Uh, crucially, you're selling this probably to people that don't know that much about the thing that you're selling. Right. You're selling it to people who can't read. <laughs> yeah. Um, some people who might not even speak English. And yeah. And you're you're selling them something that yeah they do in theory want, but you're overselling it and inflating the price. Right. Well, and also in this time period that we're talking about, the late 1700s and early 1800s. The land that was being speculated on was all land that other people were living on. The Specifically, yeah, the Cherokee, the Creek, um, other indigenous groups in this area. Yeah, all kinds of people that aren't actually people under liberalism. Right. Um, yeah, and just read under capitalism as well there, right? Like, it's synonymous in this instance, I feel like. So... Crockett's family early on was touched by indigenous conflicts basically because of land speculation. These guys were just like selling off land that had been guaranteed to indigenous groups and treaties, you know, because there was no government there to really regulate it. Right. You just set up and you're like, there's a thousand acres behind me, guys. You can pick out 50 to settle on. doesn't matter if it's already treated land because the government isn't there to enforce it, you know? Yeah. And and they also don't want to enforce it. They don't even care. want to. And once you sell it, it's no longer your problem, right? They sell it to these guys and they're like, "Oh, hey, there might be some squatters there." But they're like, "Wait, squatters are are people going to be mad at us and the guys already walking away with your money, right?" <laughs> <laughs> and so this is basically what happened to Crockett's family. Like his grandfather and grandmother and I think one of his uncles were basically like killed in an attack by some local indigenous people because, you know, they're not going to attack the land speculators who are like freely inviting in people because they're, you know, dandelions. They're here and gone again, you know? Yeah. Um, that's not who they see. They see the people who move in and build their yeah. cabins and that's who they attack. And, you know, they're being infringed upon, right? Like it's their land. It was guaranteed to them in treaties. They ne they literally need those resources to live. Like we've talked to, we've talked about like indigenous land use ethics a little bit on this yeah. show in the past. But well, I mean, shit. Did most of them even know about any type of treaty, or did they just know like, hey, we've been here forever? Yeah. And now these people are in here doing all kinds of shit that we don't really jive with i mean right you know fuck them like I, I don't really think that the indigenous people really gave much of a shit about the law right yeah and even though i think this particular event when his family was slain happened before david crockett was actually born 
it's still like one of those things like that gets, you know, ingrained in him by his family. And it's like, Oh, of course. If your grandparents get murdered by indigenous people, that's probably right. Indians killed my grandfather. Right. Yeah. That's probably the thing you're going to hear about the most. It's basically a a joke. Like so-and-so killed my grandfather. Like you say that when someone's really mad at something, Oh geez, did they kill your grandfather? And he would actually be like, yes, they did. (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, I've never heard that one before. So, yeah, one thing I'm not going to go through all of his early life and history like I will with Jim Bowie, but I think we need to think about Davy Crockett in his like teens and early 20s as basically being the 1810 version of an Internet edge lord from today. Okay, and I'll, I'll give you three reasons for that. Uh, the first being that his father was a drunk who beat him often. Um, often because he wanted him to do well in school, which I find amusing. <laughs> well, you know, the beatings will continue until grades improve. <laughs> and that meant that he was slightly better educated than people around him. Like he could do accounting and he could read and stuff. Um, he, he had to, it sounds yeah. like. Uh, and also partly because of his, you know, father's abuse, he walked around a lot. Like he would just like drift off for a while and sometimes he would like go hundreds of miles and just like, which, you know, for someone in the 1810s, that means you're basically like one of the most well-cultured people in the neighborhood. If you've like walked to, you know, North Carolina and back from Tennessee, people are like, you fucking world traveler. Like what's, what's, what's North Carolina like? Holy shit. You've been to Shenandoah? My God. I hear I mean, it's the city of life. He, he couldn't find a horse. Yeah, I mean, they weren't, like, super well off. His dad did own a mill, but because of the drunkenness, he didn't really keep it up that well. Gotcha. Yeah. He gave all of his money to the bar and the bank. Right, right. Yeah, David Crockett would, like, leave for a while, and it would come back, and everyone would be, like, really happy that he was back, and, you know, like, oh, the family's back together, and then you know how it goes with the drunken father. But, um, yeah, so... Not not a particularly happy childhood. And honestly, it's not something, even though, you know, David Crockett, like, wrote a lot to, like, you know, self-promotion, most of what he wrote about his own childhood was bullshit. And at least Davis here is trying to assemble the more boring and poignant story. All right, so now we pick up with our last episode in the War of 1812. We established how... In the War of 1812, a lot of different indigenous groups allied with the British as basically a, you know, opportunistic, you know, chance to stem the growing tide of the United States and maybe even recoup some of the land that was lost to, yeah, settlers like the Crockett family, you know? Yeah, it was pretty much their only move. Yeah, it was the only thing they could do. Among the tribes who allied with the British were the Creek, who might have been, critically, maybe, the ones who murdered the Crockett family. So, after the Creek joined the war, this is quoting from Davis, anticipating the need for a preemptive strike, some whites that summer, this would have been 1813, attacked a party of Creek at Burnt Corn Creek in southern Alabama Territory, inaugurating what would be called the First Creek War. The Creek were not long in, a, in retaliating. 
White settlers and a couple of companies of Mississippi volunteers occupied a stockade at Fort Mims. Just a couple companies. Just not a not a not a large group by any means. How many people is that? I think a company is like I want to say like ninety people. Okay. You know. So yeah, a couple companies and some white settlers occupied a stockade at Fort Mims, about thirty miles upriver from Mobile, Alabama. And on August 30th, 1813, the creek struck by surprise. I love how Davis writes this. The whites never even got the gates to the fort closed. He, he loves to just refer to Europeans as whites. Uh, seems like it. Yeah. When was this book written? This was written in the 90s. Okay. 1998. But, I mean, even at this time... Like, people weren't considering, you know, themselves white. They were Irish, German, Scottish, you know, like, this is a more recent conception that he's superimposing, right? Yeah, but also just, like, completely antiquated in his own time, though. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. So anyway, after several hours of brutal and largely one-sided fighting, nearly 500 lay dead in the stockade. No more than 50 escaped to spread the news of the massacre through the shocked frontier. The British might be hundreds of miles away, but now there was a war right there on their hearths. Right? So this is the Fort Mims massacre. And this is basically what draws David Crockett and a bunch of other people into the War of 1812. Now, the way this usually works is through joining militias. There aren't just like organized companies of fighting men out there on the frontier ready to go. There isn't a standing army for that matter, right? It's just a bunch of good old boys figuring it out. A bunch of good old boys had to figure it out. And, you know, they got riled up and they all got together and made a war, right? So Crockett joins the militia and they end up actually fighting with a friend of the show, Andrew Jackson. We talked about the Battle of New Orleans, which wouldn't happen until like 1815. Technically, after the peace treaty with Britain had been signed. That's what Jackson is mostly well known for in this war, but he did spend a lot of time, kind of the majority of the war, just fighting the indigenous people in the American Southeast. Interestingly, Davis notes that David Crockett had no real instinct for fighting. His was a nature too cheerful, even too even-tempered. Although he was quoted writing about the Fort Mims massacre saying, my dander was up and nothing but war could bring it right again. What does that mean? <clears throat> I mean, yeah, he's... <laughs> that, that, that's why I don't... I think Davis is trying to have it both ways here, right? He's saying, oh, he didn't really like to fight. But then he was like, oh, but he did all this fighting. <laughs> yeah, I mean. So one of the defining, I guess, one of the most ubiquitous like experiences of Crockett's time fighting with Andrew Jackson in the Southeast was starvation. These guys were constantly starving because, well, Andrew Jackson was like one of those leaders who you might describe as effective but harsh. And... He really, like, ran these guys around the wilderness really fast without much care for provisioning or logistics or anything like that, right? Because Old Hickory, 
I mean, didn't they call him Old Hickory because of like he was basically like a like a Hickory switch? Like he was just like whipping his soldiers all the time. I think so. Didn't they like him because he he's one of those dudes that like slept in the mud with his guys, but like he was also just a bastard. Yeah, yeah, effective but harsh. Yes. So these guys were like starving all the time, and Crockett kind of first can conceptualize of himself as a celebrity. Because already, you know, Andrew Jackson is a little bit of a celebrity in America. And so he's kind of coattailing Andrew Jackson in many ways. His his main job, though, is like hunting. Like, he doesn't really fight so much as he's in the scouting parties because these guys are constantly starving. And he's always just like the first to volunteer to go into the woods to hunt for deer. And, you know, every now and then he gets a deer or some rabbits or something. And he basically is just able to you know, with a few other scouts kind of string these guys along as they fight this protracted, it's like somewhere between like, um, jungle warfare and insurgency. Right. Well, I mean, it sounds to me like Crockett must've been really popular with the rest of the people he was with. Yeah. He was getting food for them. Right. Yeah. So yeah, they're starving a lot though. And they're just kind of being strung along. But I'll relate this instance to you because I think it's very telling. All right, so within a few days, they learned positively that a band of Creek sat camped at Tallahassee, no more than eight or ten miles distant from their position. These guys immediately mounted the division, 900 strong, and sent them out well before dawn on the morning of November 3rd. This would have been also in 1813. They divided into two parties, approaching the camp from opposite sides, and then joined their flanks to surround the still unsuspecting creek completely. This is basically just like a village encampment. You know, these aren't necessarily even fighting men. Probably there were fighting men in there, but um, this was, you know, just a a bunch of just families, right? It's not a war party. No, no. The fight opened shortly after sunrise when a company of rangers advanced on the sleeping village and a shout of alarm woke the foe. At first, the creek saw only the rangers and rushed out of them as the whites purposely withdrew to their main line. Suddenly, the volunteers opened fire, forcing them back into their camps and then began inexorably close in on them, tightening a circle from which there was no escape. You know, they're like closing in in a big circle around the camp. This was to be the white man's repayment for Fort Mims, as everyone knew. Thanks, Davis. And Crockett felt no more compunction than the rest at firing into the teeming mass of trapped natives before him. Seeing themselves hopelessly surrounded, about 80 women and children in the camp ran out to surrender themselves, and some were taken alive. But for the rest, once the killing fire started, only their blood could quench the flame. Crockett himself felt no hesitation at joining 20 others and answering with a fatal volley. This is quoting from Crockett now. We now shot them like dogs, he recalled without remorse. Two score warriors took shelter in one wooden house, and the volunteers set it alight and burned them alive. Crockett never forgot the image of one boy no more than 12, 
a leg and arm broken by rifle fire, trying fruitlessly to crawl away from the blazing hut. Crockett said apparently with no touch of compassion that he was so near the burning house that the grease was stewing out of him, this 12-year-old. Any dead creek, even a child, redeemed the debt for Fort Mims, and it was one more that would never threaten his own home and family. And then this is what I love where Davis says this. It was part of the brutal but inevitable law of the frontier. And I would say hardly. I would say hardly. Because I will also just point out that who anticipated the need for the preemptive strike that presaged the Fort Mims massacre? It was a group of whites. Then the Fort Mims massacre happens. Then this happens. Just brutal stuff. And like I said, Crockett was apparently remorseless on this. Um, so this is, of course, remembered as the Battle of Tallahassee, whereas Fort Mims is called a massacre. Because, I was going to say battle. Yeah. But if you'll also, I don't know if you've, people still call it the Battle at Wounded Knee, right? Instead of the Massacre at Wounded Knee. Yeah, I suppose. I mean... When it was basically the same setup, a big encirclement and then, you know, a uh, mass shooting. Well, yeah. I mean, it sounds like both of them were massacres. It's just like one of them was against right an army encampment and one of them was against a bunch of, yeah. you know, what we would call civilians if they were on our side. Yeah, the attack on the stockade that had two companies in it, that was a massacre. But this was a battle for sure. Um yeah, it always drives me nuts when I, when I see that shit, dude. Because, like, the Wounded Knee was a massacre. Sand Creek was a massacre. All this shit that every time there's a massacre of Native Americans, it gets called a yeah. battle by history, and it's not. Um, yeah, they're all massacres. So, not one adult male escaped. Only five of the volunteers died of their wounds. I like how he's calling them either whites or volunteers. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but so here's the thing. So basically, they got scared right away, though, because there had been all the shooting. They had done horrible murders. I mean, I think, I feel like that's kind of telling, too. That they got scared, and then they were like, oh, shit, there might be a more powerful group nearby. We need to run away, which is what they did. No, 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 no. No, that he's calling them volunteers. Yeah. They're here by choice. Yeah, yeah. They didn't have to go. No. (laughs) The people that they are air quote battling i don't know that they had much of a choice yeah these guys did so yeah they got scared that you know maybe some of the actual fighting people of the creek might be nearby and would you know be justifiably angry at them for doing war crimes so i mean it's all it's all off the rails now yeah it's off the rails and so they they basically like run away and run back to their camp at fort struther But the thing is, is they're starving, right? And basically the next day after they get back to Fort Struther after doing this massacre, they're all like hungry and shit. And they remember that they saw like some potatoes and some beef in some of these houses in the Indian camp that they were burning. So hungry were they that the next day they rode back to Tallahassee, remembering beef and potatoes in some of the burning houses. Crockett surveyed a battleground strewn with bloating and half-burned corpses, 
But then he and others found a large store of, of potatoes beneath the ruins of the great house that they had burned with 40 warriors inside. Hunger compelled us to eat them, though I had a little will rather not, he said, for the oil of the Indians we had burned up on the day before had run down on the potatoes, and they looked like they had been stewed with fat meat. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We do not talk about that in the David Crockett song. He's a fucking psychopath, dude. I mean... (sighs) Well, I mean... They've been acting like monsters for fucking... Eh, if you're starving to death because you're out trying to murder a bunch of people, uh... I mean, what's the harm in just eating some potatoes cooked with human rendered <laughs> lard? You know, man. Um, yeah, I I just don't even know what to make of that, dude. Like, that's fucking sick. It's just fucking sick. Hey, man, shit happens. Yeah, war. What what a concept. <laughs> All right, so in the Yo. following winter, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Shouldn't people just have the right to eat human fat? No. <laughs> That's what these guys are fighting for, right? <laughs> Their freedom? I mean, I mean, they wanted to serve with this old hickory who was going to just drive them around at a starvation, starvation diet so they could, you know, massacre Indians. <laughs> Insane. Um, so- sounds like a just an awesome summer. All right, so as it ends up happening, the next year things settle down a little bit. Because remember, the Battle of New Orleans isn't until 1815. And these guys end up basically like hanging around one fort for a while. And they all kind of get bored. And uh, a bunch of them, including David Crockett, just basically decides just time to call it good and go home. Right? They're not killing, they're not massacring Indians anymore. So they just are like, ah, oh, it's just, yeah, fuck it, you know? <laughs> maybe let's not talk about the potatoes once we get home um so yeah many turned ugly quoting from davis many turned ugly plundering the army grain supplies and frightening the local population this is like in the european settlements where they're hanging out given his mild nature crockett was not likely to have been among the riotous element but shared their enthusiasm for going home enlistment or none I just love that Davis is like, given his mild nature. And I'm like, this dude just ate human meat potatoes. <laughs> yeah, but I <laughs> And mean, massacred people. There was like human fat on it, but they didn't say anything about like jalapeno. <laughs> this is, he's just a mild guy. You know? <laughs> All right, so Jackson was none too so pleased. So wait, though, you're telling me that like... These dudes, they were, like, turning into the Wendigo? <laughs> yes! Basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, oh, basically. Man. So, anyway, they all decided they wanted to go home, and they basically did. General Jackson was none too pleased. The general called them deserters and lukewarm patriots indeed, who in their moments of danger and necessity can halt and discharge of their duty to argue and quibble. It's kind of a little fuck you from the man himself, right? But nonetheless, um, David Crockett, after getting home, 
did receive his discharge paperwork and was paid $65.59 for his service to the American government. Hot dog. That's like four years salary back then, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good chunk of money. So, um, he actually, uh, so yeah, he leaves the army and goes home later in eight and later in 1814, he actually does get called up again. He basically would have rejoined Jackson and might've even been at the battle of new Orleans, but you know, and again, this is why I think he's a psychopath, right? Like this dude is good for unfair fights. Like psychopaths always target people who are weaker than them because they don't want to fight someone who could actually kick their ass, you know, someone like Jim Bowie. And the prospect of now serving and actually fighting against the British and not just, you know, creeks who are asleep in their beds. That's a little bit much for cuck bitch Davy Crockett. And so he hires a young man to serve out his enlistment for him. Basically just like pay some local teenager to go show up at the army for him and do army things. Which is something you could do back then. And can still do today. I, I was going to say, yeah. what do you mean back then? <laughs> anyway, just to kind of summarize with Davy Crockett, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear, Jared, that this flesh-eating psychopath ended up running for Congress and winning twice. All seems in order here. <laughs> All right, so... Yeah, so he runs for Congress in Tennessee, his home state. He's congr- he's congressman for two different districts. He kind of he's kind of on an anti-Jackson platform in the 1820s and early 1830s. Which, oh, really? Yeah, you know, um, he's kind of opposed to Andrew Jackson, and you know, because isn't Jackson kind of a kind of a Federalist? You know, I could be misremembering. Wait, that. I could what? have an opposite, or he hated the central bank. Definitely right? the opposite. Yeah, he yeah. abolished the central bank. Yeah. That's why it's now called the Federal Reserve. Right, right. Yeah, so, you know, it was about monetary policy and that kind of dumb bullshit, you know. Gotcha. But, uh, and that's kind of why he would end up jumping at a chance to go be a celebrity somewhere else later on when, you know, Texas starts happening. But anyway, that's that's all I really wanted to talk about with uh, with Davy Crockett and historiography. But in our in our last section of the show here, you know, because aside from being a history podcast and a gardening podcast, Compost Bin of History is also a regionalist podcast. Right, Jared? Yes. We're kind of of that art movement that, you know, focuses on regions, particularly in, you know, Americana, and applies kind of a unique viewpoint to things that might be of interest to people in those regions, but that might also kind of reflect the experience of those people to outside observers. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I've never really thought about it, but yeah, because sounds about right. You know, like talk about water issues. It's a big deal, both in Colorado and Iowa forest yeah. fire, right? You know, these types oh, yeah, of things. You know, it's for you talk about what you know. Yeah. Yeah. And even, even like this whole forget about the Alamo series, we're really exploring like the Latin American heritage of like this huge chunk of America that we both love, you know, like Jared went to Mexico last year, had a great time. I've, I've, I've loved living in Colorado, Colorado. Um, the diversity out here, specifically the, the Latin American heritage, probably my favorite part of the state. 
So, um, yeah, this is, this is regionalism. And also because, you know, one of our listeners is, uh, is a King Supers employee, Tyler, the tax man. I do want to kind of talk a little bit about this, uh, recent mass shooting that happened down in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, this would have been about a week ago, maybe 10 days ago now. And did you hear about this at all on the news, Jared? Uh, I don't really consume much news these days so you probably heard that there was a shooting though i heard about the atlanta one okay yeah this happened like about a week after Uh, the atlanta shootings yeah so i i also did hear about this one uh from a friend i guess who his brother like lives in that area but that was the way that i heard about it not on the news okay so yeah i guess uh the main reason I want to talk about it is just to express solidarity to the the people who have been affected by this because of their work, because of where they live, and just because you know this is a this is like a a, a human moment. Um, it's very sad. It's very senseless. And, and yeah, you know, everybody goes to the grocery store, right? Exactly. Not everyone goes to Asian massage parlors. But everyone goes to the grocery store. Um, yeah. This is the kind of thing that happens in this country that you kind of like have to grapple with. It's kind of like the idea that you could just be in a car accident and die, which is also a uniquely American thing, by the way. I mean, this is still unlikely, but unfortunately it happens all too often. I thought maybe we'd just like read from this CNN article that kind of describes the events of it. And maybe see if we can draw a few comparisons, you know, turn the compost a little bit. Frankly, I think that knowing more about it, I think it it just makes it a little bit sadder, to be honest, knowing like about the, the person who perpetrated this ugly act. But I think that we can kind of look at it within the context of what we literally just talked about with Davy Crockett, right? All right, so... I'm just going to read from the CNN article. I'm not going to go about in the details of the shooting. Ten people were killed in a, in a supermarket, King Supers. Uh, the shooter, this guy, uh, his name was Ahmad Al-Alawi Alisa. Um, Alisa, whose family immigrated from Syria, may have been suffering from mental illness, according to his 34-year-old brother. The brother told CNN on Tuesday that in high school, bullies had made fun of Alyssa's name and for being Muslim and that he may have contributed to him being antisocial. That may have contributed to him being antisocial. Well, if society's rejecting you. uh... (laughs) Yeah, there you go. People chose not to mess with him because of his temper. People chose not to really talk to him because of all how he acted and things like that. So yeah, he was very alone, said Damien Cruz, who has known Elisa since fifth grade. Elisa had become increasingly paranoid around 2014, believing he was being followed and chased, according to his brother. At one point, the young man covered the camera on his computer with duct tape so that he could not be seen, said the brother who lives with Elisa. And that, uh, to be fair, that is something that I actually do. <clears throat> Maybe I'm paranoid. <laughs> I figure if somebody wants to watch what I'm doing, <laughs> let them, <laughs> you know, he always suspected someone was behind him, 
someone chasing him, his brother said. We kept a close eye on him when he was in high school. He would say, someone is chasing me, someone is investigating me. And we're like, come on, man, there's nothing. He was just closing into himself, the brother added. Skipping forward a little bit. He was posting on Facebook that he thought his old school, uh, his his old high school was like hacking into his phone even like a year or years after he graduated. He made a post on July 5th, 2019, saying that people were hacking into his phone and saying, let me have a normal life. I probably could. I think that's kind of telling too, you know, like he, he wants to, he has, he has some aspiration for normalcy, but because of, I guess, you know, the, the system that he's in, that's not something that he can attain. Um, when Facebook friends questioned how he knew the school was hacking his phone, Elisa said, I believe part racism for sure, but I also believe someone spread rumors about me, which are false. And maybe that set it off. The profile claims Elisa attended Arvada West High School. <laughs> that doesn't really answer the question. Right, it asked, doesn't. But... And he was a student there from March 2015 until he graduated in May 2018. Elisa was not very political or particularly religious, according to his brother, who said he never heard the young man threaten to use violence. And the entire thing surprised me, the brother said of Monday shootings. I never would have thought that he would do such a thing. I never thought he would kill. I still can't believe it. I'm really sad for the lives he wasted, and I feel sorry for all those families. We lost a brother, even if he is the killer. Um, The sister-in-law, who also lived in the household with this family, said that she had seen this guy playing with a gun that looked like a quote-unquote toy machine gun a few days prior to the shooting. They also, when police searched his home, they found another, uh, another rifle in the house. Do they and sell toy machine guns anymore? I I don't think so, but likely the gun that she saw him playing with was not a toy, but was the, the real gun that he perpetrated the shooting with. And interestingly, and this is, I think, important to note from a policy standpoint, that Elisa was found guilty of assault in 2018 and was sentenced to one year probation and 48 hours of community service after being found guilty of third-degree assault in 2018 for an incident that occurred the previous November According to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, the case stemmed from an incident in which the thin 18-year-old Elisa was accused of attacking a classmate at Arvada West High School. Um, A report from the police officer included in the case file says Elisa got up in a classroom and walked over to the victim and cold cocked him in the head. And then got on top of the victim and punched him in the head several more times, the report says, adding the victim had bruising, swelling, and cuts to the head as well as pain. No witnesses could he- see or hear any reason for that attack, and Elisa said the victim had made fun of him and called him racial names weeks earlier, the officer wrote. And then, yeah, as you said, um, the article kind of sums up that this happened one week after the Atlanta massacre. And so, you know, I think unfortunately we see we see some commonalities just between like what davis is writing about davy crockett being like oh he was nice he was even natured but then somehow like this this you know seemingly nice even tempered person as capable of these like it seems like it should be incongruous and yet to the people reporting it and especially in in afterthought it seems to just go together all too well right like 
these people are actually violent but the thing is is that they don't have like i feel like they don't have a recourse for that passion through uh normal means and it gets acted out in the surprise attack which is what literally happened with like davy crockett right that's a mass shooting what davy crockett did at talissa hatchie like america has this history of spree killing and our literal heroes like the people who we mythologize the legends who davis writes about they're they're spree killers you know there are these meek and mild-mannered people who wake up one day and have these paranoid delusions about uh the the people who are just waiting to kill them who are stalking them behind every bush and say i'm gonna get them first you know I don't know. What do you th- what do you think, Jared? Help me out here. Um <clears throat> It's tough. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds to me like uh somebody should have maybe been helping that kid a little bit. Yeah, for sure. You know, at some point. Um cuz it's but, just really uh, sad, right? I mean High school uh, I mean, yeah. High school's tough for everyone. It's especially yeah, tough for some people. Definitely it's sad, but I mean, you know, if there is a group of people that are tormenting you, whether or not it's real you know, or imagined, justified, you know, oh yeah, real or imagined, uh, that doesn't really matter. I guess it matters how that feeling translates into your actions, I guess. Right. You're right. And the other thing I think that really jumped out to me there was the assault charge because, you know, one of the like very like low hanging fruit, I feel like for, any movement on gun control would be to make it so that people with an assault charge can't just like go and buy these types of guns that you can do a spree shooting with. Yeah. I mean, there probably should be some extra steps, I guess, if you just kind of sucker punch and then beat the shit out of somebody. Right. And the fact is, is he bought these guns only a few days before the shooting. These weren't things that he had for any other purpose. Um, well, I mean, plus even they're talking about that assault. I mean, that seemed like a uh, spontaneous thing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Everyone there was like, it's not like he the kid was currently being racist to him or anything. Uh, mm-hmm. He just kind of got up and surprise attacked this dude. Right. Yeah, I, I guess, I don't know. It makes me think about how... Um, For an injustice weeks earlier. I mean... Right. Right. So there's definitely a parallel there. But. Right. The the way we mythologize historical figures, I do feel like is kind of turned into through honestly through a lot of media like true crime and news reporting and the I mean, just our history classes. And just our history classes that people who commit these heinous acts of violence are mythologized in in some ways like the the people like Davy Crockett And to me, that speaks to the same type of like cultural vacuum, I guess, that I feel like exists now that also existed then a thousand, you know, 900 people just like dropped everything so they could go murder Indians. You know, they had better things to do, you know, they didn't have to go. Right. And yet that's what they chose. Yeah, I mean. That kid most certainly chose to go do that. I mean, yeah. 
I guess it's debatable whether or not he had a very firm grip on what was actually going on, but right. he was motivated to do that. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I also think about like, um, that, yeah, he needed extra help that these people don't just like come about like pre-made, you know, this is a product of not only, um, the person and their own personal proclivities, but the society that they are, that they exist within. Yeah. Well, you know, if a group of people murders your grandparents, Mm -hmm. um, that's probably going to maybe predict how you're going to view those people. Um, and frankly, the racism thing is just a pretty straightforward parallel there. Yeah. You know, but I mean, you know, even with this kid, if the people around you, are tormenting you your whole life right you know whether or not you play into that or not i mean that's going to affect how you view other people and right you know yeah i think that like there is something about this age of yike of like young men you know that i don't mean like age in the era or epoch sense but like the literal time period between like um yeah like 15 to about 28 15 to 28 exactly yeah and you know that's like where the traditionally the in a sense traditionally the fighting men were drawn from was from that age pool right um i i guess you know trying not to do too much historiography on something that happened so recently i think that we all want something more out of society and when we're left behind when things don't meet our expectations and especially when other people actively, you know, denigrate and oppose us for young men. And, you know, enabled to, to coherently articulate some type of bigger idea about why they're alienated and what their, you know, actual like needs are, I guess. This is just something that that happens. And I mean, I hate saying that. This is just something that happens because it does kind of, I don't want to flatten this. You're not trying to like predetermine what's going to go on. Right, right. But I think especially when you like look at the assault thing, you know, and the fact that he was able to get it so recently, so, so recently before the shooting, seems like there are some things that could be done. Well, yeah, it's predictable. It is predictable. You know, maybe it's not inevitable, but it's definitely not surprising. Right. And so, like, hearing the details of it, it, none of it surprises me, you know. Like, um, this guy was was subject to racist attacks and, you know, had had paranoid delusions that probably stemmed from some kind of, like, um, maybe undiagnosed mental health problem. And we don't live in a society where people can easily get access to you know um mental health care i mean just being picked on and bullied i mean that that's traumatic yeah yeah you know so yeah you know i i guess just to kind of wrap it up a little bit on this down note i do want to just really uh yeah express my uh compassion and just sincere regret to all the all the uh, employees of you know King Supers and other grocery marts, who are just out there trying to earn a living, you know, just trying to go about their day to day bullshit, 
And, you know, this is something that, you know, even if you're not physically there, you still kind of feel the ripples of that trauma as a member of that community, you know? Oh yeah. That's horrific. It shouldn't happen. Right. I mean, while this is happening, I mean, you know, obviously it's bogus, just everything being equal, but like the shit that's going on around us right now, um, for people to still say that this is like the best country in the world. Right. Whatever the hell that even means. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there's a lot, there's a lot that we need to do better on. Um, so yeah, much love to Tyler, the tax man. I'm thinking about you, buddy. Uh, let's get together. Let's head to Longmont and get lunch. Um, I'm working Monday to Friday, but if you can do a Saturday or Sunday, see, he works Saturday, Sunday, though, is the thing. So it's tough. One of us is going to have to take time off just so we can visit each other and just so we can build some modicum of interf- inter- interfacial human connection. You know, we, one yeah. of us has to sacrifice monetary gain. Yeah, that's, uh, why are people alienated in this society? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, man. It's probably the way it's always been and the way it always will be. Yeah. Well, um, I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Tyler, the tax man thinking about you, bro. Love you, bro. Um, everyone down in Boulder. Hey, one of my favorite cities, even though fucking IBM is there. Fuck IBM. (laughs) Fuck that place that makes all the like, um, glass shit for lasers. I mean, that's kind of one of the other things I guess we could talk a little bit about is that, you know, Boulder, despite being this kind of like hippie Mecca is kind of a center for like the military industrial complex. Like they draw so much talent from the university of Boulder, people who like just create machines of death that kill hundreds of thousands or thousands of people on a massive scale in fucking, you know, Yemen and Afghanistan and Pakistan yeah, yeah, but those people are, like, paying back their student loans and buying houses and stuff. But they're still committing <laughs> mass murder is the thing, you know? like Well, not one of those people. That was one of the bad people. <laughs> the reason that, you know, the housing market is so astronomical and bolder is because of all these people making so much money off of, you know, imp- the imperialist death machine, basically. Like, I mean, the the, the economics of the whole system is all it all loops back to mass murder i mean like well, i can't get over that it. frontier somehow uh, yeah yeah it's it's the the frontier mythology is now expressed via a drone screen right um it's sickening you know uh well it's good for the environment at least <laughs> But this, again, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about me being a Marxist. This is why. This is why. It's because this whole system is, is toxic from top to bottom. Even the people who proclaim to be, you know, creating jobs and, you know, going to school are still feeding the same machine of death and exploitation. You know, if you've designed a better a better uh, glass lens at, well, you're a, you know, PhD student at Boulder, you might go on to, you know, uh, do some great things with your life, be a good member of the economy, spend a lot of money. 
But if that glass lens, you know, was responsible for killing 50 children in Pakistan, you're still an asshole. You still are a murderer, in my opinion. You know, I don't know. Like, but that's how you make money. Mm-hmm. Got to pull an Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the system's bad. I'm, I'm, I'm with Father Hidalgo. I'm say down with bad government. <laughs> it stinks. Yep, it stinks. Get rid of it. <laughs> Let's build a new one. <laughs> and uh yeah, just to reiterate, our economics episode, it stands. James Texas James, <laughs> don't be sending me questions about economics because it's all bullshit. Okay? I don't even <laughs> want to see it. You know it's you know it's fake. Don't stop no. trying to Jared me. No, I want to I want to see these questions. <laughs> uh he's talking about like donut theory just cuz it got published in Time magazine. And I'm like if it, if Time magazine publishes this, you know, thing about some new economic theory, it's only because it doesn't challenge anything about current economic theory. If it did, yeah, well, Time magazine wouldn't publish it. I mean, tabloids and news outlets are so good at interpreting uh <laughs> scientific papers well this isn't even i mean this is just not even hardly academic this is like someone was just like you know what is donut theory like horseshoe theory no it's just like a carbon credit basically it's like what if we had a regressive tax system that made poor people pay more for shit that takes more fossil fuels is basically what it comes down to oh well then they put on yellow vests yeah it doesn't work it doesn't work it's fake Isn't that what France did? Yeah. And that's what started the yellow vest? Yeah. Movement? It won't work. Texas James, it doesn't work. It's fake. You can't you <laughs> can't square the circle of capitalism, okay? It doesn't work. You have to undo it. You have to slice the Gordian knot. I don't know how to do it. I don't know how, Jared. I don't know, man. I think uh, we just need Iron Man or something. Sad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's tough, dude. It's, it's a not, I don't know. But, um... You know, let me just try and keep slowly bringing the vibe back up so we don't end on like a super sour note, okay? Oh, are we we not feeling... I'm trying to... I'm bringing it up. We're getting there. We're getting there. Oh, okay. Where's your vibe at? Is it here? Or is it here? I mean, I'm feeling pretty good. Okay, okay. I guess uh, (laughs) maybe if this was new information to me, I would be more sad. All right. Well, um, I do want to just like spread some good vibes around. I know that on our mediocre podcast, we shouldn't talk about excellent podcasts because it makes us look bad. But does it? I don't know, maybe. But um, it's like when a mo- when a bad movie references a better movie, and you're like, I should just be watching that. Uh, but this That's is fine. But I mean, you know, <laughs> maybe finish this one first. Yeah, this is at the end of the show, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> a, a podcast I've been really getting into that I've been absolutely devouring is michael and us have you heard of it jared nope this is a film criticism podcast by one of the phenomenal writers over at jacobin magazine luke savage and a canadian film critic who is a friend of his named will sloan and they kind of started it out as like a basically where these two friends like watched all of michael moore's movies together and kind of like did a leftist critique of Michael Moore's, you know, liberalism. Yeah. Uh, not a better podcast rumble with Michael Moore. Uh, the thing is just hysterical. Oh, really? I, yeah. I haven't heard of it. Is Michael Moore on it? 
uh yeah it's like michael moore's podcast he started it like not that long ago let's see here he started it like one year ago basically and he has 176 episodes already uh michael moore friend of the fracking industry famously right up there what's him some fracking (laughs) yeah um lot lots to problematize there and so yeah i are you actually recommending that genuinely is it good i mean have you been listening to it yeah no i'm unsubscribing oh okay (laughs) (laughs) no um no i used to have like quite a bit of respect for michael moore but every year that passes it just uh well that that's very much it just keeps keeps shrinking that's very much the sentiment of the podcast michael and us and um that's kind of a pun on one of michael moore's first movies roger and me but they've gone on they've gone on past the michael moore oeuvre and have just looked at a bunch of other political cinema and even like cinema classics like the one they did most recently was the man who shot liberty valance john wayne john ford classic one movie that i watched when i was a kid and some really really good film criticism from a left perspective i i'm a big fan i'm i support them on patreon now i awesome. i'd recommend it to anyone all right well sort of in the same vein i guess uh i like a podcast called horror vanguard horror vanguard they do uh leftist critiques of famous horror movies oh okay and uh it's pretty good well i wouldn't be surprised if there were a crossover in the future since those those types of intellectuals tend to get around a little bit yeah that would be excellent i'm gonna have to check that out yeah check out michael and us check out horror vanguard and um especially if you're into movies or just want <laughs> something good to listen photo to it's just a photo of michael moore it's like a photo of a tattoo of michael moore <laughs> oh wait that's a tattoo yeah <laughs> whoa okay isn't that funny <laughs> that uh might have to be the first tattoo i get <laughs> all right well hey hey jared thanks for slugging it out with me man i, I appreciate it yeah i'm just looking at pictures of michael moore now <laughs> <laughs> yes he's a land of multitudes um <laughs> very handsome gentleman well um yeah best wishes to everybody out there thank you all for listening you can email us at compostbenefistory at gmail.com. Jared, you got anything you want to wrap up with? Oh, it's spring's right around the corner. Plants right. are emerging. Yes. And uh, mushrooms are going to start popping up yeah. all over the place. So uh, get outside and enjoy Yeah. what's going on. Plant some basil. There you go. There you go. All right. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Cut it off. Ah, uh, this will be a fun. It's over. This will be a fun one to find music for. <laughs> you let me know if you nice have any suggestions. Oh boy! All right, I'll give it a thought. You know, these are getting easier to edit, and not because I'm well, getting better good. at editing. It's just because we're finding our editorial voices. We suck less. <laughs> yeah, just because we suck less. But do that. Well, that one, that one that I fell asleep on, that was probably really easy to. Edit. <laughs> but dude, like, um, yeah, Michael and us—they didn't even go on Patreon until like their sixtieth episode. You know, 
they they so this is the long game jared i think i feel like we're doing the slow build but oh uh, well we're i think I mean, we're like hey, an underground punk scene you know like possibly i mean that's what i keep telling myself otherwise we're just gonna have to admit to ourselves that we're no good and no one likes us. <laughs> well i'm gonna finish the alamo series before i even consider that thought and that might oh, take several I years <laughs> i never i never meant to suggest that i thought that that meant we should stop doing it yeah no like like you said i think we are getting better at it yeah i don't give a shit if people listen or not yeah yeah you know what yeah fucking like six people read the great gatsby and then 20 years later oh god what a piece of shit i hate that book you know i don't hate it (laughs) i don't hate it like there are so many books that you should read besides that one yes that's for sure there's not enough time in your life to books like force yourself to read the great gatsby three roads to the alamo by william jefferson davis (laughs) Uh, well okay for you yeah knock yourself out read the great gatsby probably read it in a fucking afternoon (laughs) oh dude bowie it's 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 bowie man bowie's where it's at (laughs) jim bowie yeah you don't mess around with jim that's right. <laughs> Is that what you're going to end this on? Uh, the, ne- the next episode, for sure. Yeah. Next time on Forget About the Alamo, it's finally buoy time. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> buoy. Get ready, because he's about to knock your yeah. socks off. Bring your knife. <laughs> I know next to nothing about the man that is Jim Bowie, so... You're going to love it, Jared. I mean, honestly... For someone who is literally a slave smuggler, this is probably the best person who we will talk about on this show so far. All right. Just a happening cat trying to rub a couple pennies together. Huh? That's it, man. That's it. That's really it. He's a happening cat trying to rub a couple pennies together. And we'll see where it gets him. Oh, well. Gets him in the history books, at least, <laughs> it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right dude i'm gonna let you go okay all right man. all right love you jared <laughs> love you too man all right thanks Later. bro born on a mountaintop in tennessee green estate in the land of the free raised in the woods so he knew every tree killed him a bar when he was only three davy davy crockett king of the wild frontier single-handed through the engine war till the creeks was whipped and peace was in store and while he was handling this risky chore made himself a legend forevermore Davy, Davy Crockett the man who don't know fear Justify!
Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Fuck